Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour. The show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Hi, and welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Uh, this month on Power Hour, we have a really interesting guest, the director of a new movie called Spoiled. Now, uh, as some of you know, I've given a lot of lectures around the country on the importance of oil in human life and how we as Americans often completely take it for granted and undervalue it. So you can imagine that I was pleasantly surprised when I saw that there was actually a movie uh, and actually advertising for a movie that in many ways was pro-oil in this way. Not that we don't have any problems connected to oil, but that oil is something completely crucial to human life. It's certainly not something I'd seen in any movie before. So I decided to bring on the director, Mark Mathis, uh, to discuss Spoiled. Mark, thanks for being on the program. Alex, my pleasure. So tell us the story of Spoiled. I know that, that you have a background, uh, and this happens to many of us. I have my own little story of how I got interested in oil. But what's the story of how you got interested in oil and why you decided to make this movie? It's been a kind of a very weird path for me, Alex. Uh, My background is in media. I was a TV news reporter for about 10 years and got tired of that and started my own uh, media relations company. I wrote a book, uh, and it came out in 2002, uh, called Feeding the Media Beast. And and that book has uh, been quite successful and published all over the world. As a result of that book, uh, I was uh, called in by uh, an oil and gas group that said, hey, uh, we need to, to learn what it is that you know and teach. And so I was, most of my business at that time was teaching people how to uh, handle the news media. So I went down and I did some training for these guys and, and, and they said, you know what, we need, we need help on a, a sort of an ongoing basis because we're always uh, getting beat up and uh, we're stepping on our, on our own tongues. And so I said, sure. Um, so we uh, I just form a const- uh, brought them on as a client in my uh, consulting business. And um, along the way, started to learn uh, a lot about um, the industry and about the energy in general and was really just blown away. Uh, I couldn't believe that there was all this stuff that I didn't know, uh, and here I thought I was somebody who was, you know, uh, you know, college educated, well read, um, a person who knew a lot about a lot, and yet I didn't know anything about this sector. Uh, and then I started learning about all of the uh, the groups that are rallied uh, to obstruct what this industry does, and you know, it became very uh, disconcerting to, to me. So. From that point, I wound up years later actually forming a nonprofit organization called CARE, Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. I founded that organization and uh, ran it for a couple of years beforehand because I, I wanted to do something bigger. And then along the way, something really weird happened. Uh, I got a phone call and was asked to uh, help on a documentary film called Expelled with Ben Stein. And so I, I started working on this film with these people and as this thing proceeded I continued to 
do more and more on this film and then wound up being uh, the line producer. So I ran the crew and did I actually did most of the interviews for the film. And along the way, had a conversation with uh, the director of that film and the camera guys and writer and sort of talking to them about oil and energy. And, and they were so blown away like I was. They said, when this film's over, we need to do a film on oil. So that's what happened. As soon as that film was done, uh, and we, we went out and raised the money, and here we are. So when you say you were struck by uh, what you didn't know about the energy sector, what what in particular stood out to you as, as what you hadn't learned in college, what you hadn't learned by following the media your whole life? I had no idea that oil in particular was so critically important to absolutely everything that, that I did in my life, that it was uh, surrounded me in every product that it, you know, transported me, that it lubricated all these machines. And uh, I mean, the ubiquitous nature of oil is, is really stunning when you stop and sit down and, and think it through. Um, one commodity carries so much of the load in our modern world. Uh, and I, 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 how, how is it? I mean, it would be like, saying, okay, I'm, you know, walking around living my life for 40 years at that point and, and had no idea about the importance of the blood in my body. It's, you know, how could, how could I not? How could I not understand the importance of, my, of the blood in my body? Uh, it's the same thing here. How, how could we, as just sort of normal people walking around, not have any idea of the absolute critical uh, nature of oil to our daily lives. I, I I was stunned by it. I'm still stunned by it, and I've been I've been working through these arguments for almost ten years now. Yeah, now I've I, I've been fortunate enough to to see the movie, and my my single favorite part of the movie, and I think for a lot of people it will be me. I have a professional bias because I'm I, I really am always looking for new ways to show people how instrumental oil is in their lives, and there's just some really brilliant scenes. Uh, showing just in your, and I won't give it all away, but just showing in your house how, you know, basically everything is made possible in one way or another by this phenomenon of this concentrated portable fuel that therefore, uh, do, can do all the most important work whenever, wherever. So anything that requires portable power, you're going to find oil. And at the same time, because of the chemical composition of it, because of its nature of its hydrocarbons, uh, it's the feedstock for these uh, petrochemicals uh, and petroleum products that make up an enormous just uh, segment of just all of the material, all the amazing materials in our society. I mean, as I will tell audiences, you know, if it's not wood, if it's not metal, if it's not plant, you know, if it's not stone, if it's not a couple other things, it's probably uh, made of oil. So, so that that for me also was a big revelation. Just when I started studying oil, learning about all of the things uh, that it's it's connected to, and I think that's one. That's kind of like it's it can be shocking that we don't even people don't know that because there's so much else to understand, and this comes out in the movie in terms of, okay, well, how did oil get to this place in our economy, and what what do we do about it? And these more advanced conceptual questions, but. The first thing we need to know is this thing is completely pervasive and, and what I like about the movie is it, it doesn't convey that as a bad thing. It conveys that as this is, it's a positive that benefits your life. It's not an addiction, right? Well, that, you know, that speaks to the title of the film. Um, we, 
uh, I have a uh, visceral reaction to this statement that was made by President Bush in 2006 in his State of the Union speech, which has now permeated the entire culture. This idea that we are addicted to oil, that word addicted, uh, you know, people may not think that's a big thing, but actually in my mind it's a very big thing uh, because we've now as a society come to accept that. You would not believe the amount of, the number of people that I've talked to who work in the oil industry who say, yes, of course we're addicted to oil. And I had to stop them and say, wait a minute, addicted? Is that the right word here? Are you addicted to water, to air, to your home, to your job, to your, you know, addiction? Is that the right word? And then as I start explaining it to them, they, they get it. And they understand, you know what, addiction. When you think about addiction, that's something that destroys your life. If you're addicted to drugs or or alcohol or gambling or whatever your addiction is, it wrecks your life. Can you say that about oil? No, oil is your life. You don't. Your life doesn't exist in any way remotely connected to what it is today if you don't have sufficient supplies of oil. I'm not saying no oil. You can't even fathom what no oil is. I can't. Uh, because you're, you're, you're sitting naked on the ground uh, out by yourself and no building. I mean, it's that extreme. I'm talking about, let's just cut your oil supply in half. You can't even fathom what that would happen, what, the impact of that to your life. Uh, it's extreme. So this idea of we're addicted is preposterous. And what it does is it sets us up as a society to have a negative view of oil, which is absurd. Do you have a negative view of the other things that sustain your life? Water, your, you know, the blood in your body, the air that you breathe? Of course not. So the fact that this one commodity is so central, so incredibly important, and yet, as people, we think it's bad, this speaks to the, to the name of the film, which is spoiled. We're not addicted to oil. We're spoiled by oil. And because we're spoiled, we actually talk negatively about this thing that sustains us. Yeah, that that uh, that raises uh, a lot of interesting issues, which I want to bring up over the course of the interview. Let's see where should we where should we start? So, um, in terms of well, let's, uh, I'll bring up some things later. But what I want to get at is first, what do you see as the arc? of our society's view of oil and its policy toward oil that has brought us toward today? Because I think you and I might disagree about certain things about the, the future of oil, although we'll see. But I think it's important to look at how this animus against oil has shaped uh, especially America's domestic policy, but also its foreign policy in terms of drilling or not drilling for oil and then what, what position we're left in today as a result. Well, I think if, the, if we're going to use the word addiction at all, I would tell people that we're addicted to not oil, but to our delusions about oil, uh, which is to say that we can, the, uh, if not turn off the spigot, we can, we can turn it down. You know, that we've got these other energy sources, these so-called green or clean energy sources that are somehow going to pull the load. Uh, we'll, we'll get by if we have a lot less oil. Well, the fact of the matter is, you won't. And so, but what's happened along the way is that we've had all different groups of people who, for their own interests, uh, discuss oil in a way that is, that is negative and then make decisions in a way that are negative. There are these pressure groups uh, 
that, that put, they put pressure on people who are elected in power, and they drive their agendas through the bureaucracy and then through elected officials to restrict energy production. And it's not just oil. It's, of course, natural gas, coal, and now you know, nuclear power. You know, you're going to see you know, cries to restrict uranium production. Uh, because these people, we don't want this here. You know, we don't want a refinery in our backyard. We don't want oil production here. And it's all these different groups who are pushing for less production. It's like we want what these energy sources provide, but we don't want to see them. Well, <laughs> that's, that's irrational. Uh, and then it's, we, we've got this whole cultural thing that has happened, and this dates back to you know, the early 70s, where, you know, look, uh, you know, industrial pollution and, and uh, energy production was not as clean a process as, as it could have been. Uh, and so you know, we had a big pollution problem in the 70s. And we had to clean this place up. And, and good for us, we did. Uh, but away, people then started saying, you know, well, we don't need these things. <laughs> because they're, they're so disconnected from the production of energy uh, to what it is, how they use energy. They don't think about where this stuff comes from, how the lights stay on, how, how, the, how it is that they can just drive around the corner and fill their, their car with gasoline or diesel and then drive for a few hundred miles. Uh, it just never occurs to them. So it's, just, it's happened over decades where people have embraced this idea that, okay, we can do something different. And, it, and it's not helpful that you have people like, uh, the current president who about oil as if it's yesterday's energy. <laughs> well, no, it's not. Uh, and it's tomorrow's energy and the next day and, and probably more than a century down the road, if not forever. Uh, so when you have people in power who are saying these preposterous things, the people in the culture over time start to believe them. Uh, you know, the more often you, re you repeat you know, lies or distortions, the more believable that they become, and and so we're we're at the at the I wouldn't say the end, but we're we're at a, at a very advanced stage of people denying these things. So we think, okay, well we let's save every little uh, or save put that in quotation marks every little tiny species on the planet which somebody's telling us is, is threatened or endangered, uh, and so we're going to take large swaths of land out of production for energy. Well, there's consequences to these things, and and so we haven't had to feel the pain of those consequences in any significant way since the 70s, and so we just think life's going to just cruise right along as it always had, even though we've got people who are motivated to stop energy production uh, almost everywhere we look. Yeah, I want to connect uh, a couple of things you said. I understand them because there's this there um, in the movie and, and and what you just said. There is a certain belief uh, which I I I, over, I uh, primarily disagree with that the pollution of the '70s a really big cause of the anti-oil sentiment. And I only believe that that's true from one perspective, which is that. It was caricatured in such a way, like through the Santa Barbara oil spill and other things, 
as this enormous and somehow new thing. But if we study the history of oil, I mean, pollution from oil was much, much worse uh, in, in decades earlier. It was getting progressively cleaner, as was pollution from everything else through the 70s. The 70s was not some breakthrough for the cleanliness of the human environment. The human environment was actually improving from an animal-based environment to a machine-based environment um, from the Industrial Revolution on fairly steadily. What happened, though, was the rise of this this green mentality, which, as you indicated, is not really about, you know, protecting the welfare of humans and our surroundings. It's about protecting all these little species. And it's on the premise that it's somehow wrong for human beings to transform nature. So the whole pollution thing is a ruse because think about all the things that we – I'm telling the audiences. Think about all the things that Mark has talked about in terms of how much oil benefits human life. And you could extend that to natural gas. You could extend that to – to coal. And if you have a movement coming around that says uh, the essence of how we define these energies is by their pollution, that this is the lens through which we look at them as polluting energies, these people have no concept of the incredible positive benefits that this has brought human life. And we're talking about decades and decades of a longer life. And this is why Ayn Rand made a really controversial statement, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but she said, if you understand what what fossil fuels have done for human life, you'll go kiss the the sootiest smokestack you can find. And then she elaborated, <laughs> now, of course, with technology, the smokestacks don't have to be sooty, but when such a big issue is at stake, that's not the point. The point is this doubled your life expectancy, and you're calling it dirty, leaving aside environmentalists right. love, love dirt. So I don't know why they're always complaining about things being dirty. But, right. you know, that's it. So it's really that. This whole point about the positive, I think, is so profoundly important because it's we don't understand the concrete positive benefits, but then we don't have a, a philosophical framework by which we look at this whole quest of producing these fuels as a positive. And therefore, it's the easiest thing in the world for any environmental gang to stop them left and right and jeopardize the future of our civilization. Uh, I the, <laughs> the only thing that I disagree with you on, Alex, it was your first sentence that you said you're going to disagree with me. I think we are on exactly the same page. Uh, people, um, it is because we, because we don't know what we don't know, because we haven't had to live as people lived, you know, 80, 100, 200 years ago, we have no concept of how these energy sources actually make our life not just cleaner, but extraordinarily cleaner. Uh, and it's the energy sources that do that. Uh, you know from watching the film that we provide a very stark contrast of, okay, what, what would your world look like if you had a lot less oil? And then we show that contrast film, and it is, it is, it is uh, such an eye-opener to see. You know, we take you to the, to the island of Haiti and show you, look, this is what happens when you, have, when you are energy poor, this is what your life looks like. And it's one of the great ironies for me when I, when I listen to people who are uh, so supposedly uh, activists for the environment and they're working uh, uh, at every corner possible to try to restrict energy production. It's, and it's like, don't you face the fact that if you restrict energy production, the first thing that's going to suffer is the environment. Go to any place... And, and look at, their, at the level of energy production that that society has. And then start at the highest levels and work your way down. As you work your way down to less energy production and usage, 
you you core it's a polar opposite now your environmental destruction grows so you know it's these things we point some things out in the film as well like uh, some ironies such as you know the, the world was uh, very focused on this oil spill that happened in the Gulf which many predicted was going to be uh, the consequences of that were going to be catastrophic. Uh, of course, it wasn't good. We didn't want that. Um, you know, there were a lot of negative effects to that. I don't want to minimize that and the impact to the environment, to the to the economy. But here we are, uh, a little over a year later, and things have, have pretty much returned to normal. Uh, and there are still some issues that have to be dealt with there. Um, uh, but in cleaning up this spill, what did we use to clean up the spill? Well, it was the, the, the cleanup was dominated by what? Oil. By all of these machines that could go out and, and, and pull oil out of the ocean. And all the plastic were used to bag the oil. You know, the plastics are oil. And they used to bag the oil and move the oil and take the oil. And so the biggest weapon in fighting the spill was oil itself. Uh, so, you know, and, and, and to take the argument to extend it further, to, more to what you were saying, Alex, is that, you know, go back 100 years, or, you know, 150 years. And talk about transportation. Talk about what was, you know, the mode of transportation, you know, for a lot of people was horses. And you want to talk about filth and disease and uh, uh, a very unpleasant way to live. I mean, horse manure everywhere was a gigantic problem. Uh, and you look at the way we live today and contrast that to how people lived in, in cities, you know, just, you know, a little more than a century ago. And it is, it is, uh, the contrast is really stunning. Yeah, well, um, yeah, and I, I want to reiterate that, that the movie uh, does a really good job uh, on this category of point. And you said you don't want to minimize the oil spill. I do want to minimize the oil spill. The primary thing with the oil spill that was really tragic was that 11 people lost their lives uh, in that accident. Now, obviously, there's no, I mean, no one wanted that oil to go in the ocean, certainly not the people who lost hundreds of millions or billions of dollars because the oil was so valuable. But if you look at the cultural's self, the culture's self-righteous response to this event and you look at its actual consequences on human life, the obsession was not on what was happening to human life. It was, it was on what was happening to non-human life, you know, to the birds. Yeah. And, and it's not like, Anyone really wants to dump oil to get birds coated in oil. I mean, there's no sense in that. There's no virtue in that. But it's, I mean, think about the number of mistakes that politicians make that are incredibly costly, uh, to human oh. life. I mean, the number of lies that are told. And yet, an oil company, you know, that devotes its life basically, you know, BP is, is not my best friend given its beyond petroleum old old slogan but nevertheless this is producing the lifeblood of civilization this is allowing Absolutely. you to bring if you if you ever get you know someone gets married this is a, what allows you to bring all of your loved ones from around the world to your wedding this makes possible so right. many things and yet as soon as people see any quote unnatural thing happening that is black stuff in an ocean they go ballistic now do are they do they even know that every year by quote natural means two exxon valdez is worth of oil go into the Gulf of Mexico naturally? Do they pay any attention to the amount of dirt and grime and, and quote unquote pollution that occurs in nature? Do they 
look at how many natural things kill birds? No. So what ha- what it is is we've really have this deeply instilled anti-human premise from the Greens because the same thing can happen, quote, naturally. And this is even true of the climate warming up. If that happens naturally, no big deal. But if human beings, if that's a byproduct of them promoting their lives, then it's regarded as evil. And what that, that shows me is that the, this environmentalist idea of man sacrificing to nature has become ingrained. But with most people, it's become dressed up as this anti-pollution crusade. And part of the reason that goes over is because they don't appreciate things uh, like how important oil is. Right. We, we, we um, as you know, we address this um as best we can in a 90-minute film, under a section we call eco guilt, which uh, which tries to explain you know why it is that that we think this way and why it is that this uh, condition that you explain exists. I think you know we we don't live in a, in a logical world. I mean, we have guys like me and you, Alex, who uh, uh, look at the world in a in a way that is is, is much more pragmatic. And uh, logical, you know, and that's that's what we present in this film, Spoiled. Uh, and the the public doesn't generally um, work that way. So, but if you look at that energy production as a cost benefit, okay, we're gonna we're gonna stack up all the costs on this side, and we're gonna stack up all the benefits on this side. But what Spoiled tries to do is to give you some window into the fact that the benefits are. So it's so high. There's, there's, the benefits are so many that you really can't even fully grasp them, even though they're all around you. You can't grasp the benefits. There's so many, and the costs are actually exceedingly low. Uh, and that even when something bad happens, like the BP oil spill, it, in contrast to the benefits, it's, it's almost not even measurable. And the benefits enable us to very quickly deal with the costs. Uh, so it's, you know, this is what the film Spoil tries to do, is to show people these, these things which should be obvious to us, but yet they're not because we've been propagandized by politicians, by the media, by people who are driving their own agendas, who are ignoring what is real and true. Let's talk a little bit about oil policy. What what do you think the policy of the U.S. government should be toward oil and, and allowing or disallowing free oil exploration? Well, I, I we have a commodity that is the central, most important commodity, as we've discussed, uh, and and the the burden, the load that oil carries for us is. So high. I mean, we've got something like you know, it, it serves something like 97 or 99 percent of our transportation needs, which is the uh, foundation of the modern world is transportation. Uh, and then, you, then it's in all of these these products, from paint to lipstick to uh, you know, you name it. All of our plastics, you know, the phone that I'm talking on. Um, so this commodity is so incredibly important. We need to guarantee that we're not going to have a sudden or prolonged loss of, of this, this critical commodity. So we're living at a time when three-quarters of the world doesn't use that much oil. Their oil use compared to ours is pretty small. But yet this developing world wants to use a whole heck of a lot more oil. Uh, and so we've got these pressures between supply and demand. Uh, 
uh, and we need to ensure the supply. And we need to do everything we can to take this critically important commodity and lessen its burden. So in the areas of transportation, to me, that's the most critical. That let's figure out a way that we can power transportation uh, to a degree. Let's bring it down. 98% is a little high. <laughs> it's really high. Let's bring it down to 70%, you know, maybe, or 80%. You know, this is going to take decades. And the only thing that's on the horizon now that, that can help in any significant way is natural gas. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, compressed natural gas cars. I think this is something we need to embrace fully. At the same time, uh, we need to go out and get a lot more oil. Uh, the, the cheap, easy to oil to get oil has been found. There's a lot more oil out there, but it ha but we need it. It is expensive. It's offshore. It's uh, you know the onshore stuff. Has, we we've, we've, uh, the the companies have to use extreme measures. They have to drill deep. They have to use all these uh, uh, incredible technological advancements to extract this oil. Uh, and so it's it's getting harder. And the pressure from the developing world is. Is, is getting more extreme. And so the ensuring the flow of this critical commodity is, is more important than ever, but yet we have uh, a, an administration and we have a Congress that is just indulges every group out there that wants to restrict domestic production. And to me, this is a recipe for a catastrophic type failure. So I find it interesting. So just going back to kind of one of the themes that we're talking about of, of the need to understand the role of oil in life. So I mentioned that that's kind of, I think, the first thing that people need to understand. But I think the second thing becomes even more conceptual. And that is economically, how, how was it that, because if, you know, if we look at the world today and we look at it a hundred years ago, if we look at the cause and effect of it, so much of it is that oil has taken a much larger role in human life. But from another perspective, um, it's that the market has been free to operate. You know, n not completely free, but largely free. And that's the reason why we use oil. So we use oil because it's the best, cheapest way of meeting certain needs. And if we try to think of it as a society or as a kind of central planner and think like, how, how is this going to happen in the future? There's these concerns about supply. You know, there's underwater drilling. It's not as easy to get oil as it is in Saudi Arabia, although to get that oil out of Saudi Arabia took decades. So that wasn't really easy oil either. But it's, it becomes this incredibly, almost unbearably complex question of, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about the future of oil? And yet if we leave the market free, in my opinion, it becomes a very simple question because all the combined intelligence of individuals goes to work on that problem, which means that the more the more price upward price pressure you get on oil, the more incentive you have for drilling, um, the more incentive you have for substitutes. And there are a lot of different ways to provide liquid fuel. Now, some of them might not be quite as optimal as oil, but you can make methanol from coal. You can make it from natural gas. You can do compressed natural gas. There are a million hypothetical ways, and you or I can't really know what will be the best. The one thing we can know is that what's required for the market to function is for people to actually be free to act on their ideas and to develop. And that's where I see one of the huge, one of the two huge problems with our energy supply picture is, is not that we don't have people strategizing about oil, 
but we have them strategizing about nature and therefore they're restricting the development of oil and all of the potential substitutes for oil and therefore the market is not going to be able to do its job. And then I think people are going to be doing these kind of second best or things like, oh, let's promote this, let's promote that. But really, you can't solve these problems by government figuring it out. You can only solve them by liberating people. I, um, I'm not sure how I can add to that. I, I am, am agree completely. And this, this, what you're talking about, Alex, is something that we discuss in Spoiled, um, which is the, the side of the equation from oil, from oil production side that is most important, which is what we call the geopolitical side. You have the geology side and you have the geopolitical side. And the, geo, the geopolitical side is, is a mess. Uh, you've got some things that you uh, you can't control and you can't deal with, and we have to ex- and, and <laughs> just we have to accept that. I mean, we've got the quagmire that is the Middle East. I mean, this this place is is highly dysfunctional. This is where most of the world's oil comes from, and you know, there's we don't have control over these countries, so we have to, we can only control you know domestically. You know, our, our free market principles for going out and getting these energy sources. I am one who has as you know, great confidence. Um, you know, the uh, um, I have great confidence in the industry to do the kinds of things that they've done in the last in the last several years, especially where natural gas is concerned, to figure out ways to get more, develop more, get more out of the resources that we know of, find other resources. Um, but the political restrictions on these things are, provide a a barrier, and that is the big problem I see moving forward. Is is we've got this barrier to what can be produced because of these restrictions that have been put in place by our government. Now, in the in the movie, you have some scenarios of, or at least indications of scenarios of what's going to happen if we continue on this path, uh, and that it's going to be you know, really bad. And one interesting aspect I, I saw in it that I wanted to talk about, because I want to talk about what the causes are of this kind of thing, is real societal chaos, like almost breakdowns and, and whatnot. Can you talk about how bad energy policy could really lead to, to something like that? Uh, absolutely. Look, we, we, we go back to the first part of our conversation about oil and its, and its central role that it plays in absolutely everything that we do. If, if there is a sudden – we live with this every day, by the way. Today, tomorrow, we've been living with it for a long time. And so you, you, you get used to living with a risk, and you start minimizing that risk. And that risk is a sudden supply disruption. Something happens, and you know, we don't have enough oil to feed demand. So today we're burning roughly somewhere around 86 million barrels a day. Uh, in the world and in the United States, somewhere around 19, 20 million barrels a day. Well, let's say there's a disruption that uh, in, in the Middle East, in the, in the Strait of Hormuz, somewhere, where the world is, is only able to flow, say, 75 million barrels as opposed to 86 million barrels. The consequences of that don't sound like they would be too severe. Quite the contrary. They would be extreme. The the price of oil is all on the margin. Uh, the difference between 86 million barrels a day that is flowed and used and, let's say, 80 million barrels 
just a drop of 6 million barrels, is not the difference between 350 a gallon for, for gasoline and 425 or 4 bucks. It's the difference between 350 and 6 bucks because of the way the economics of it, all the pride on the margin, and you have all these people pursuing this commodity and not enough of that commodity, the price jumps quickly. Then if you reduce the flow of oil even further, now you're looking at situations where, unfortunately, I think what we would see is price controls put in place by um, incompetent government officials. They've done this in the past. And now you would have a situation where gas stations can't provide the fuel at a profit. They actually would be at a loss. Then they just stop selling it. You have uh, So these things, you look at our society and how it, it is run on these fuel sources. And if suddenly overnight you have uh, a 40, 50, 80, 100% increase in the price of a gallon of gasoline, uh, or you can't get it, the consequences of that, the confidence in, in how the society runs will, would break down rapidly, where people then have this fear, oh, no, I'm, I'm not going to be able to lead my life the way I need to lead it. I better go to the grocery store. I better go to the bank uh, because I'm worried about what the future is going to look like. And this breakdown in confidence, uh, there, there's no telling how far it would go, but, but your entire society could break down. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned two related types of scenarios, but in my mind they're they're kind of fundamentally different in a certain way. So you mentioned the issue of, okay, you, you've got a supply disruption. I, I just say parenthetically, I think U.S. foreign policy should can and should be directed toward dealing with those things as quickly uh, as possible. And the the whole history of the Middle East is something I've spoken about in my lecture courses, but that's that's a subject for another day. But I don't think it's inevitable that it it's as bad as it is in terms of risks and and I think the risks can be overstated. But let's just say for the sake of argument, you know, a large amount of oil comes off the market, like six million barrels a day comes off the market. Um it's definitely true that the price jumps up, but and which and it's bad. It's a loss. There's no doubt about it. I mean, when it you know when I, what's gonna but what happens for the individual consumer is then he he's got demand, but his it's you know a demand is a curve. So it's a it's what he's willing to pay. What you know wh- how much he's going to demand uh, at a given at a given price. And obviously, the higher the price, the the more he's going to conserve. So you know I might drive somewhere five times a week, and I'll drive there two times a week. Or if I drove to my office, you know I might telecommute. There are lots of adjustments that we can make, and they are. They are losses. They're not. They're not good. But the more educated that a that a population is about oil, the more that they will act rationally in the face of these price increases, and they'll adjust and adapt in a way that doesn't break down the society. But what what I really worry about is because we have this anti-oil sentiment and a really anti-economic sentiment that doesn't understand prices and supply and demand, the phenomenon of price controls, which is what you mentioned, and that's what we had in the 70s. It wasn't that the price went up. It's that you had these shortages where people literally couldn't get the gasoline at the prices they were willing to pay. And what happens then is the economy becomes completely predictable. You have all of these, these dislocations. Um, and it's, it's a mess. So I would just highlight for people the, dis- the distinction between prices going up, um, and price controls creating shortages. You don't have shortages even if, or even if gasoline is $15 a gallon. Now it's not great, but the price controls plus the other stuff is what really leads to the catastrophe, and the less we appreciate oil and oil companies, the more we're going to be in favor of that kind of drastic thing. And then 
that's when the real breakdowns happen, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, you're absolutely correct, and I would tell you, I would tell you that it is ab, it is inevitable. If you have a sudden supply disruption, it is inevitable. It is it is. I would. It's just not even conceivable to me that that politicians would not wade in in their own self interest and put on price controls. They always do it. If you and therefore the politicians create the problem. If you let the free market run, if you allow the price to rise. People then make very good, rational, self-interested decisions that that help moderate the situation. They do what you they do what you've said. Instead of you know making you know, ten trips when they can make four, they do. And a lot of us can can make those adjustments. And then you have demand destruction, where the society's demanding less oil, uh, and 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 that drives the price down because you're not consuming as much. That, I'm not concerned about sort of the, the mid-range, longer-range ability of our people and societies to adapt to a much more expensive fuel source, which I think is coming. Um, it, I'm not that concerned about that aspect of it. There'll be economic consequences. It's going to be tough. But we'll, we'll adapt. We'll deal with it. What I'm most concerned about is what happens with a sudden and somewhat prolonged, let's say even just you know a month or two, Supply disruption, the political consequences of politicians trying to act like they're doing something, and then making the problem worse, and then people having this loss of confidence that 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 there's going to be food in the grocery store, uh, and then what happens when irrational behavior very quickly takes over? That's when things get super dangerous. Yes, it seems to point to that there's this this need for this dual education, both in the value of of oil, but more broadly of other, you know, of energy and of other fuels that require, you know, changing the earth, not being green, so to speak, you know, getting this, the whole freedom to develop so that we can get as much supply as, you know, as much production as possible. And at the same time, the freedom of the market to function, both to choose among the different productive options, you know, coal, oil, natural gas, and all the different derivatives you can have of those, but also for consumers to be free to choose to spend less, uh, or to choose to, to, to buy less, you know, when prices go up. Unless you have that freedom of development combined with that freedom of price, both of those are the ingredients basically that I think made our amazing world of oil possible. But to the extent people don't understand, A, that the world is amazing, and B, that these are the two big causes, what's going to happen is as soon as something goes wrong, they're going to destroy one or both of those causes, and they're already destroying cause A. And I think, unfortunately, you're right that cause B comes as soon as there's uh, as soon as there's any kind of appearance of a problem, because politicians are going to blame it all on the oil companies. And who's the most hated group in our society? The companies that produce the lifeblood. I mean, that is not a sustainable situation. And I think I think um, one of the great benefits of the movie is that it, it brings this to people's attention. Yeah. It- <laughs> We, how is it that, that we have a disdain for these companies that produce the, the lifeblood of the society? And so we get, do get in that in, in spoiled. We talk about these, uh, these themes that are repeated over and over in the media, uh, such as record profits. Well, you know, we break that down and we say, let's, let's look at that. Is this really true? And it's really, for, I think, for a, uh, a person who's coming at this subject from 
um, a not very well-informed point, uh, point of view or misinformed, I think that some of the content is just re is really almost shocking that the level of deception that has heaped upon them. Um, and this, you're exactly right, Alex. Uh, if we have, when we have a disruption, when we have uh, a pressure point where people are really feeling the pain where oil is concerned and liquid fuels are concerned, the first people that they're going to direct their animosity is going to be oil companies. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate. I'm trying to uh, do something about this with this film. Um, and, and we need to look at those things. This is why I'm such a big opponent of natural gas vehicles. I, I don't want the government involved in promoting them. But look, we need to be educated as consumers. I mean, this is, you talk about a market opportunity. Uh, it, to me, it's, it's so large, it's hard, it's difficult to comprehend the market opportunity for uh, car companies, for um, oil, and oil and natural gas companies to have a situation where people in their own house can have two different kinds of cars. They have a, a gasoline car, a diesel car for, for some functions, and then they have a natural gas car. Uh, and the, the flexibility that that would have them um, would be amazing. And would be would really go a long way toward helping to stabilize what we use as uh, as a fuel source for for transportation. Yeah, natural gas cars. And that, the there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, I could talk about that. Actually, I'll talk about it a little bit uh, in the wrap up. So I'll send that to you later. What I say there. But um, what I want to just make sure of, since we're, we're uh, approaching the end of our time, is tell our audience how they can learn more about Spoiled. How they can how they can watch it. Sell your wares. <laughs> we uh, the film is rolling out um, uh, in October uh, in the 11th, uh, 12th, and 13th in Farmington, New Mexico. Uh, we then go down south to Artesia, Hobbs, and Carlsbad. Or, I'm, I'm sorry, Artesia, Hobbs, and uh, Roswell. And uh, then we move over to California, where we have showings in uh, Santa Maria, California, and Bakersfield, California. Uh, and then from there, we've got another 30 or more cities in the pipeline. Uh, we think once the word of the film gets out, it's going to spread nationally, and people will be able to see this film in the theater um, in many communities all across the country. Uh, that's, that momentum is, is building now. For the moment, though, if they're interested in the movie, they can go to our website, spoiledthemovie.com. Uh, on that website, you can, uh, you can hook up and link to follow me on Twitter and see our Facebook page. You can, you can look at our screening schedule. We'll also, at some point here in the next couple of months, uh, we, we, we're, we have the, you can pre-order DVDs of the film, um, and uh, those, those will actually start getting delivered sometime around probably late October, early November. Um, and uh, so spoilthemovie.com. Uh, all right. Great stuff. Uh, thanks, Mark, for being on the program, and we'll, we'll keep in touch. I appreciate you letting me uh, come on, Alex. I'm a big fan. All right. Thank you very much. All right. I want to thank Mark Mathis for coming on the program and discussing Spoiled and, and a lot of the uh, issues that it raises. The thing that I want to stress in this wrap-up is the need to understand the oil market. 
So as I mentioned, I think the first and foremost thing you need to know before you even get started is how important oil is to human life. Just the raw fact that so much of the value in our lives comes from this one material. Uh, but then just as important, if not more important, is understanding the mechanisms by which that came to be. Because often it's, it can be too easy to look at oil as, as this magical substance that if there were no oil, like human beings could never do anything. Now, it's true, given our current knowledge, it is the best substance, and it is an amazing substance, and we should absolutely be free to use that substance as well as, pos as much as possible. But I think it's helpful to think of oil as oil is the best and cheapest way that we currently know to solve certain problems. Nothing more and nothing less. Nothing less because that's a really big deal. It's a really big deal to be able to use the best uh, and cheapest thing that's known and possible at a given point. But nothing less in the sense of there's not this – we shouldn't think of it in this fixed um, way that, all, that the sustainability crowd does where they say, well, we use this much oil now and these guys are going to uh, demand more in the future and that's going to become this huge problem. You could have said that kind of thing at any point in the history of oil. There's no real point in the history of oil. I mean, maybe you could make a case for a decade or two, but where it's really viewed as, oh, there's tons of easy oil on the horizon. Uh, in fact, it's generally really hard to find oil, but when people are free, it's, it's, it's very much possible. And the reason it's possible is because f people are free to engage in development to thus extract the oil, and people are free to ex uh, exchange in commerce, including freedom of pricing, which allows the whole price mechanism to work, which we, we talked about on a couple times during the show. But understanding that, we can then understand the mechanism by which, say, maybe 10 times more oil will be found than we think, or there's a transition to natural gas, or there's a transition to uh, you, you know, converting coal uh, into automotive fuel, which is something China is doing right now and which is, has become more and more economic recently. And part of understanding that process is understanding that we as our job as commentators is not really to speculate about what technology is going to win. And not there's anything inherently uh, catastrophic about speculation, but we need to realize that these decisions morally and economically need to be made by actors on the market. So at the end of the show, uh, Mark mentioned the potential, uh, the incredible potential of natural gas cars. Now, do natural gas cars have incredible potential? There are some reasons to think so. I mean, more, you know, um, but it, it really depends on a lot of things. For example, why don't we use natural gas cars right now? Well, because what's called the energy density of natural gas, the the how concentrated the fuel is for the amount of energy you get is a lot less than oils. Now, you can liquefy it. You can cool it really, really cold, and then it'll become liquid. But even then, it's still a little less dense than, than gasoline. You've got all of these uh, associated costs with doing that, and it can be a, you know, a, a more difficult thing technically to manage. Now, am I saying that that's prohibitive? No, maybe we'll have bigger cars or they'll have special kinds of trunks that are bigger so you can hold you know, just as much natural gas as you can, the equivalent of gasoline. I have no idea. 
And no one can have any idea because the knowledge of how to do these things is distributed among so many different people. And this is actually going to be a point that Eric Dennis makes um, on our new website, uh, industrialprogress.net. I'll talk about more about that in a minute. Uh, on our blog, Industrial Progress Report, he's going to make he's going to give some good historic readings on the issue of central planning and what's wrong with it. Um, some readings by Hayek, uh, Friedrich Hayek, and uh, Ludwig von Mises, and and that's going to be. I think that's and Eric's own write-up, I think, is is really really insightful in terms of the nature of the knowledge that is involved in making the right decisions about these things. It's distributed among millions of people, both on the, the producer side and the consumer side. It's not something that me or Mark or anyone else can say, oh, you know, there's huge potential. There's just there's too many variables. Another another variable with natural gas is it has an incredibly efficient baseline use as heating. So there's a question of because it's it's very clean and in, with energy the most of, sort of the most the easiest thing to do with energy is get heat from it for various physical reasons it's a lot harder to get motive power from it so with natural gas you might get 97% of the potential energy in natural gas you'll get um by you know burning it in your home which is great but that means that's it's it has an extremely high value use there now what happens when you're trying to deal with oil and you're trying to displace some of that? That's 40% of the energy used in a country. So there's a question of what happens to the price of natural gas when that happens. And there's a lot of uncertainty about that price because there's a lot of uncertainty, among other things, about the supply. Um, you know, fracking has incredible potential, but how far is that going to go? And is that gas going to be best used for for transportation or is it going to be best used for power plants or heating homes? There's all kinds of open questions. And on the, on the other side, positively, you can say, well, there's these things called methane hydrates, which exist in insane quantities. Uh, and if we get those economically, then that totally changes the thing. And on the other hand, you can, and on the same hand, you, you know, Shell has a really cool plant in Qatar making natural gas into diesel. Um, and on the other hand, some people think that natural methane is actually really inherent in the earth in a fundamental and pervasive way in the same way it is in some other planets, and methane being natural gas, basically. And if that were true, then you've got this incredible supply. Now, other people think that that also holds true for oil, that in fact, oil is not only biological uh, in or origin, but can also be abiotic. So just the reason I'm giving you all these possibilities is because who knows how this is going to work out? And this is probably only a small fraction of all of the variables and possibilities. And the, so think of how naive it is um, and, how, and how destructive it is for someone like Obama to say – and the government – and Mark made sure to say the government shouldn't be doing this – but the government to say let's promote natural gas vehicles. They're just totally throwing a monkey wrench in a process that should be steered by human discovery uh, and human intelligence. So there's – such an exciting potential in energy, uh, but there's an equal, un equally unexciting tendency of leaders to central plan and try to have one or two engineers tell everyone what energy to use and how. And the way that we got to the amazing energy economy we have today was not by doing that. Uh, and the way that we're going to get f further in the future is not going to be like that. And then on the side of um, freedom of pricing, it's particularly important when something it's important for things to go right, but it's also important if something goes wrong. If oil prices go up, the m number one thing we need to stress is do not screw around with that. That is playing with fire. I mean, price controls can wreck an economy 
so quickly. Um, I mean, you can see line, you know, gas lines in the 70s, what that meant, people dying because they ran out of heating oil. It is an absolute nightmare. What you want when there's any kind of supply issue is to be free to pay as much as necessary so that you can guarantee what you absolutely need. And the more we appreciate oil, the more we appreciate free markets, the more we can make that the response if something bad happens. Though, of course, the number one thing we want is to start liberating energy production now so something bad doesn't happen. So I hope we don't get there, but if we do, remember that and, and we'll, of course, uh, I and the Center for Industrial Progress will be you know, banging the drum to make sure that Americans understand what to do in that situation and what to do long-term to get out of it. So that's, that's my wrap-up for today's show. Uh, as far as uh, just news goes, I mentioned last month I started um, – I think I mentioned that I st last month that we started the Center for Industrial Progress. But I didn't mention that last month. I had mentioned that I had switched jobs. Uh, and that's going really well. We just launched industrialprogress.net this week. So make sure to check that out. And also make sure to check out the new uh, alexepstein.com. Uh, we've gotten a lot of support from people. I think we've got a lot of new content. We've got some exciting things. We've got Dr. Eric Dennis on board as a senior fellow in science and economics. That's Eric's been amazingly helpful both in the background and increasingly in the foreground. We've started doing the uh, Power Surge series of, of uh, intermittent podcasts in between Power Hour, and I think those are those are starting to take off. So that should be uh, that should be a lot of fun. We got some other blogging talent. I won't tell you who it is yet, but you'll you'll start to see it next week. And and hopefully, you know, if any of you guys uh, can, you know, if you really know a lot and you can really write, you know, email me alex at alexepstein.com uh, and and you know we'll we'll uh, we'll find a way to use your talents, no, no doubt about that. Uh, so that's that's what's going on on the Center for Industrial Progress front. One other thing is, and this is this is a pretty cool thing. Uh, I am in October doing a bunch of speaking. I think I'm booked right now for a bunch for six events, and this should be. This should be a pretty constant thing going forward. Hopefully, we'll get even more. Uh, I really enjoy speaking, and speaking is, is a major revenue source for the Center for Industrial Progress. So I look forward to uh, going around the country, hopefully meeting a lot of you guys, uh, and, and giving a, a whole new set of speeches that I think is really going to take things to the next level in terms of, of getting people clear on energy issues, and just as important, getting you inspired and motivated to really care so that, so that you can get involved. And the, the biggest thing we have going on in October is an event at UT Austin, uh, which is a debate between me and a representative from Greenpeace. And this is big because Greenpeace is, is huge in general. They're certainly huge uh, in the Austin area. I have to thank uh, my friend and the uh, local club leader there, Brittany Rivera, for, for putting this whole thing together. She's done an amazing job. And it's really hard to get people to debate uh, in general. It's probably hard. I don't know if it's harder to get them to debate me. Uh, but she put in a lot of work. She found someone who was willing to do it. And I'm just completely excited because I, I absolutely love debating. And uh, I think it's just a fantastic way for people to see in action what what the two views, how the two views stack up when they're stacked up against one another versus, you know, one guy giving a speech to kind of his audience and another guy giving a speech to his audience. Here, you get asked all the tough questions. And from my perspective, that's the best because if I'm right, then it'll be even more apparent if I get the tough questions. And if I'm wrong about something, then I and the audience will learn uh, a valuable lesson. Uh, 
well, I won't say anything more uh, about that. Well, uh, but in terms of the Greenpeace event, I think it's I think it's super exciting. And what we're doing for it is because I think it can be such a big event. I'm not just having it at the school and then calling it at night. What I'm going to do is bring in. Uh, really professional video equipment, professional video people, and then after we get a professional producer so we can do an HD, multi-camera, professional sound recording, make DVDs of it, make Blu-rays of it, make digital recordings, and just disseminate this guy all over the internet. I think it's going to be a really, really revealing stuff. I'm going to bring my absolute best material to it. I think the debate element will appeal to people that aren't that don't find other things uh, appealing. And I think just that having a professional quality thing is key. Today's internet video is so good. The quality we're up against is so good that to make an amateur type recording is just not worth it. So um, this is going to be one of the very few times I do this, but I'm actually doing a, um, uh, it's it's kind of a contribution thing, but in a sense, it's just a, it's just a sale where uh, you can in effect buy a piece of, or you can contribute to this production if this is something you want to see, if you want copies of these DVDs, if you want to give copies to your friends. Uh, I set up something at what's called The Point, which is uh, a system that's uh, similar to one known as Kickstarter, where there's a certain financial target. Uh, if you hit it, then then you pay. You know, you make a certain pledge. But if you don't hit it, you don't know anything. So it's, it's a cool thing. So we're trying to raise at least $5,000, at least... Uh, ideally $10,000. That way we can buy all the equipment we need. And then for the rest of the talks I give this month, or at least a substantial portion, I, we can tape those professionally and we'll have just a crazy amount of really, really high quality footage. And that, that'll make it possible for me to make uh, videos with my production people. It would also make possible for any of you to make videos with your production people. I'll be happy to make any of the raw video, the raw Q&A uh, available. So I'm, I'm just incredibly excited about the opportunities. I have, uh, I have a lot of time now to really focus on speaking, uh, Q&A. So I think this is going to be the best material I've ever created. And uh, with the support of this project, it, I think it'll, it'll, um, it'll take things to the next level. So in the first four days, we've gotten $3,400, which is great. Uh, keep that going. Go to uh, industrialprogress.net. You'll see a link to the Greenpeace thing uh, and whatever you can contribute. If you can contribute $3, great. $100, great. More, great. Um, but definitely, if you can, show your support. You know, um, And I think we'll put on an absolutely, absolutely fantastic event. So with that, it's time to wrap up Power Hour for this month. Uh, if you like what you heard, Tell your friends, spread the uh, spread the iTunes link around, promote it on Facebook, Twitter, Smoke Signals, all that good stuff. If you have any questions or comments, you can always reach me at alex at alexepstein.com. That's all for now. So I will talk to you guys next month. Or if you listen to Power Surge, definitely try listening to that. I'll talk to you within the next week or two. But until then, this has been Alex Epstein with Power Hour not exactly being accurate about how the market works or not making certain things explicit about, say, rises in price uh, that Mark made more explicit during this interview. So I'm glad he made those explicit. But just as you watch, uh, think about, okay, what what parts of this really, really make total sense to me? And is, does some of this not make sense? Or is, it, is, is there something missing that I myself need to understand 
in order to have an accurate view uh, of the oil market. And that's okay. Bye bye. Bye.